Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor. So happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. We're doing the work we need to do to heal self and world at the same time. In our last contemplation, we looked at our basic need for ethical reflection. It's not an easy thing to do. We sort of sketched some important notions. We can find it easy to skip ethics if we think of ourselves as decent folk, but we considered ethics as something that demands training and insight. And we suggested we can only become truly ethical by becoming thoroughly wise. That doesn't excuse or even imply doing bad things. You know, on this side of being a total sage or being completely wise, we can still keep ethical precepts, even as we recognize our need to arrive at a fullness of wisdom that liberates us and others. And all of that makes ethics much more than a matter of mere commandments. And there's been some confusion because in part ethics is a, it has more than one dimension. And historically, we have sometimes focused on one of those dimensions. We've focused on, for instance, the consequences of our actions. Other times or other traditions or other philosophers have focused on the intentions behind the actions or our ethical uh, duty or obligation. And uh, other times people have looked at ethics as a matter of the cultivation of virtue. And ethics really has all those dimensions in it. That's in part why there's a debate. It's an easy way to resolve the debate is just to accept that each dimension has a place and that overall we have to have uh, a mystical orientation even to ethics, ultimately. In the present contemplation, we finally get to turn more directly to something we've touched on many times already, and that's the ethics of consciousness. When we work with the medicines of our world, including the medicine of philosophical teachings and psychedelic medicines too, we begin to recognize that certain states of consciousness are very conducive to insight, inspiration, getting along well together, taking care of our world and cultivating the whole of life onward. And certain other states are far less helpful far less conducive to those good things and many other good things. And it's not just that certain states are conducive to good things relative to our own experience, but that certain states bring benefit to the whole community of life, and likewise certain other states seem to bring harms to the whole community of life. When we begin to notice that, we may begin to feel an ethical obligation to cultivate states of consciousness that seem helpful to ourselves and the world we share. And likewise, we begin to feel an ethical obligation to refrain from cultivating states of consciousness that perpetuate and even elaborate suffering in ourselves and our world. And this itself reveals a central aspect of an ethics of consciousness. It's like taking responsibility for what we radiate out. What state of being do we radiate out to all beings? How does it affect them? 
How do they feel? How do we ourselves feel? We find that when we enter certain states of being, we feel good, genuinely good, not superficially, but deeply good, and we therefore become more effective in fulfilling our purpose. And we also find that others respond to us very positively. They calm down, they laugh and smile, they feel inspired, they feel lighter. Dogs seem to trust us more, birds seem less fearful. We feel more patient and trusting of ourselves, each other, and the world. And the benefits we could continue to elaborate. These positive states of being have real impacts. Ethics, then, is not just a matter of what we do for a living, that's important, our livelihood, but we have to see that holistically. Our livelihood is our whole way of making a life. It's how we manifest heart, mind, body, and world, and cosmos, really. And our ethical conscience begins to prompt us to want to take care of the world by taking care of the state of being we manifest. We sense the ethical obligation because we see the difference this makes to all beings, ultimately. And this is all part of the ethics of consciousness. And that phrase just indicates that there is something to do with a skillful and realistic and healthy and vitalizing state of consciousness, and, and that the states of consciousness that we cultivate have real consequences for ourselves and other beings, just those, the nature of those states. So ethics is not just what do I do in the world, but what is the state of being I'm in, because the state of being I'm in helps to constitute what I do. It's integral to it. It's not separate. And that's one of the dimensions of ethics. It's actually a few dimensions of ethics at play here. In a way, it's just a slice of all the dimensions of ethics, and we're looking at it in a certain way. If we set it with certain caveats around the words we're using, you know, if we were careful and made it um, a preliminary formulation, we could say that the ethics of consciousness asks this question. How do we use our consciousness? How do we use it skillfully and realistically? How do we use our awareness? How do we use the medicines of the world? And how do we use the medicine that we are? That's part of the ethics of consciousness, recognizing that we ourselves can be a medicine for the world, or we could become somewhat toxic. This set of questions carries great import for us. And we ask those questions as part of this larger-scale initiative that we have to find out the most important thing. And so we have to relate with this too in holistic terms. We're trying to relate to everything as holistically as we can, and we're recognizing that's not so easy in a culture of fragmentation. And we find that we have to grapple with this question of how to properly function, 
How do we attune our functioning to ecological and spiritual realities? In the spirit of these questions, an ethics of consciousness also recognizes that consciousness itself can take a variety of developmental pathways, partly dependent on culture. And consciousness, obviously, it's a tricky term. Here we're kind of using it in a preliminary way to refer to something that tends to arise as a fragment of a larger whole we can discern a difference between consciousness as we habitually experience it on the one hand and what we could refer to as a more primordial awareness on the other. When we say, I'm conscious, I am conscious, that I is a fragment of a larger whole of which it has limited awareness. So the I is just a sample of a much larger whole. But that I, that consciousness, nevertheless makes a difference, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of all beings. What we refer to as consciousness could arise more intimately in touch with, in relation with, or even fully awake in, through, and as a larger whole. In other words, consciousness can begin to merge with a primordial awareness and it can begin to relax into something that transcends the duality between unity and diversity, individual and collective, knower and known, self and world, and so on. We don't need to become fully enlightened for this to begin to happen in various ways. For instance, certain indigenous cultures seem to have reliably produced a different developmental path from the one we have become so used to in the dominant culture that we take it as reality. We speak about development period as if it's just one thing. This is the development of of a human organism. But it's relative. There is an ontogeny of consciousness, which means a development, developmental pathways that consciousness can take. And we have evidence that some of those styles of consciousness, some of those developmental pathways come with real benefits. Some of the alternative ones. So I'm talking about the alternative ones not in the dominant culture. We have evidence that those alternative pathways have real benefits. And that would include, say, an absence of certain forms of suffering common in the dominant culture. As one example of an alternative pathway, I recommend looking into the work of the anthropologist Richard Sorensen. He wrote about his time in the Andaman Islands and how the culture there produced a radically different style of consciousness from the one he was used to as a member of the dominant culture. He reported exceptional states of resonance between the members of the community and between humans and the natural world, including how the human community entered into the non-duality of the individual and the collective. In our dualistic thinking, we have these diametrically opposed in a lot of ways, and we often put it economically. We've kind of tied this to economics as part of the whole propaganda and uh, spiritual materialism of the dominant culture. And so we say, 
It's either capitalism, which we associate with individualism, or it's Stalin, which is apparently what we think of uh, when it comes to community. The community is tyranny, it seems. But Sorensen was talking about transcending all of this nonsense because of a much more sophisticated developmental realization of consciousness. Now, to give you a sense of how different it was, Sorensen admitted that he was not considered an adult by the standards of that culture, and he further admitted that that made sense to him. I think we've made mention of this before, this idea of an ontogenetic interruption. Ontogenesis means development, ontogeny, ontogenesis. So if there is an ontogenetic interruption, consciousness doesn't reach maturity. And we're not even talking about sagehood here, we're talking about adulthood. When Sorensen saw what the adults and even the teen members of this indigenous culture were capable of, he understood he was not an adult. And it had nothing to do with being able to shoot a bow or start a fire. It had to do with a style of skillful relationality that he couldn't even fathom at first. He could barely perceive how it functioned. It was a style of consciousness that he was observing. And the implications of his work and the work of other anthropologists, ecologists, philosophers, the implication is that the dominant culture may produce developmentally juvenile people who never reach their fuller capacities of adulthood, which human beings have the potential to realize. We have aging juveniles, and those juveniles make decisions about how to live our lives and work with the medicines of the world, how to use the resources of the world, how the economy should operate, and on and on. It's actually not a very comfortable thought. Many of us will find it easy to point to someone else. We can point to President so-and-so and say, well, clearly that he was a real juvenile, but we don't usually want to think of ourselves that way or the, the people on our side of the political party, so their president was clearly a juvenile, but not ours. And all the presidents are juveniles, but I'm not. This is often what we want to do. But the consciousness that we have in the dominant culture is just how we see reality. That's the subtle trick here. Consciousness pretends it doesn't affect reality. It pretends as if it reveals things as they are. And we can't get around that by merely intellectual means. We need a deeper shift, and a holistic philosophy of life can provide that. It can provide the context for us to have that shift. And it's like resetting our developmental pathway when we get on a spiritual path. We're, we're getting off the narrow path of the culture and entering the spacious path of m other developmental possibilities for our consciousness and the world. Now, in terms of a larger relationship of these developmental pathways, we could say we all share the same basic nature of mind. Not just all human beings, but all beings. This would be across all beings. Where there's mind, the nature of that mind is universally the same. We could suggest that. 
that we all arise from a primordial mind that allows a vast array of conscious states to appear, a vast array of developmental pathways to become realized. And education is how that developmental pathway will go. That's the meaning of education. It is walking this developmental pathway, leading a being along a developmental line. So our culture educates us. You could even say indoctrinates us. There's a good sense of indoctrination. There's also a bad sense. That's the dominant culture's sense of it. Our culture educates us into a certain style of consciousness. That's a crucial point in relation to an ethics of consciousness because we can see this is central and fundamental to education. It's as if education is only secondarily about any sort of facts. There are are a lot of subtle philosophical points here having to do with knowledge, the nature of knowledge, the nature of reality. But the idea here is it's not just a set of information that your education gives you or it gives any of us but it will help us along a developmental pathway of consciousness itself and its deeper capacities. And so an ethics of consciousness has to do with how our consciousness develops and where its center of gravity, or let's say its field of states, ends up. It's kind of almost the the field of states that it's most likely to be in, most comfortable with, most familiar with. Our consciousness begins to develop into a field of possible states. We find that in some of those states, the mind becomes more open to insight, joy, love, compassion, peace, trust, and wonder. They ultimately go together with consciousness, in fact. As we practice an attitude of compassion that shapes the development of consciousness. And so we could start to move our whole field of consciousness in that direction where it becomes more likely to shift into insight, joy, love, compassion, peace, trust, wonder. And those get stronger and stronger as the field, the center of gravity of that field or the kind of focal energy of that field begins to shift and become more mature, more open, more skillful, more realistic. And then in other states of consciousness, the mind arises as more distracted, agitated, aggressive, reactive, clingy, and self-centered. So that's another field of possible states. And we might be inclined to move into those types of states more frequently. That might be where our center of gravity is or where the focus of our field is. And so we just find ourselves in distraction, find ourselves in anxiety again, again, the depression's back. Some states of consciousness go together with suffering, confusion, anxiety, and a kind of existential bondage. Other states of consciousness go together with freedom, freedom from suffering, freedom from confusion, freedom from existential bondage. And our development determines which states become more likely for us. If we were enlightened we'd always be in the good states. Buddha, for instance, means a person in an ongoing state of wisdom, love, beauty, joy, peace, responsiveness, openness to insight. 
he was free, a totally free and unstuck person. The rest of us get stuck. That's okay. No big deal, because we can get unstuck again. And if we get on a good developmental path, we can begin falling more and more often into more and more positive states. And it's like a great spiral, a positive spiral, or it could be a negative one. That's what samsara or suffering is. We go round and round, and here we are, I'm back again at my anger, or I'm back again at my reactivity, I'm back again at my fear. I'm back again with a hangover. It's a spiral kind of circle. Sometimes it's a pretty flat spiral. We don't seem to be moving much, but I mean, things are changing, right? It's it's now it's... It's this weekend, and then, then it's the next weekend, and then, then it's the next weekend. And it's, things are a little different, but it's awfully the same, isn't it? So we could get caught in a negative spiral, or like a negative, seems like a circle, because we don't always see the spiral, that's all. It's always a spiral in one way or another, we just might not see, because it could be moving slowly. And the ethics of consciousness has to do with all of this. It has to do with the interwovenness of nature and culture. And the interwovenness of the individual and the collective. Unity and diversity. Because my, the way I work with my awareness and my consciousness affects you. And it affects all beings. If I allow myself to get into addictive, clingy, anxious states, I might burn more resources up, I might shop more, travel more, I'm trying to get something, I'm trying to get something, I'm looking for something, I'm, and I may even spiritualize it, you know? I can spiritualize and rationalize why I'm getting on an airplane again and again and another 5,000 miles and another 10,000 miles. And you can see the style of consciousness. I can get all caught up in how many points are on my credit card and how many mile, free miles I have, and I can get swept into this whole style. And it's, it's partly the information, the kinds of things I'm thinking about, but I could be thinking about a lot of spiritual things and still be in this style of consciousness that's fundamentally trying to grab after something. And that affects not just me. I'm not the only one on the line if I don't begin to get more skillful with the states of being that I manifest moment to moment and that I allow to manifest in, through, and as me. So we have to ask about the ethics of consciousness in terms of our own practice of life, that's relatively speaking, looking here at this kind of individual practice of life, and also in terms of the culture as a whole, including what the culture marginalizes or makes almost impossible or at least unlikely for most of us. And so that's not easy to see, right? Because it's what's being kept away from us or what has become endangered or extinct in terms of a state of being or a set of experiences. The great Turtle Island poet Gary Snyder gets at the ethics of consciousness in his magnum opus, Mountains and Rivers Without End. It appears throughout his work because he was a deep practitioner, an ethical practitioner, a real poet-sage in a way. I, not not a perfect Buddha, I'm sure he wouldn't say he was enlightened, but he's on that path. And although he writes about these things throughout his work, I particularly like 
a set of lines. He uses to touch on this with uh, his uh, magnum opus, Mountains and Rivers Without End. In that poem, he writes, Ghost bison, ghost bears, ghost bighorns, ghost lynx, ghost pronghorns, ghost panthers, ghost marmots, ghost owls, swirling and gathering, sweeping down. Then the white man will be gone. Butterflies on slopes of grass and aspen, thunderheads the deep blue of Krishna, rise on rainbows and falling, shining rain, each drop, tiny people gliding, slanting down, a little Buddha seated in each pearl, and join the million waving grass-seed Buddhas on the ground. This passage has become one of the amulets or talismans I keep in my philosopher's medicine bag because it's really good medicine. And Snyder has a note on this passage. He writes the following, quote, White man here is not a racial designation, but a name for a certain set of mind. When we all become born-again natives of Turtle Island, then the white man will be gone. Now that's really on the nose. That's the ethics of consciousness, and Snyder has thus pointed out that the dominant culture created a style of consciousness that we have come to associate with the term white man. That's a historical accident. But many indigenous people seem to understand this. They had to learn about it in a traumatizing way, a horrific way. But as Snyder says, it's got nothing to do with race. Richard Sorensen refers to a liminal or pre-conquest consciousness that characterizes certain indigenous cultures. Or we could say it characterizes any indigenous culture that had a primarily wise, loving, beautiful, healthy, participatory, and mutually vitalizing relationship with the earth. Not every culture we conventionally refer to as indigenous would meet this ideal. It's not to say that there isn't any human fallibility or only the dominant culture has gotten confused. Sorensen says, no, there have, this, this style of consciousness is not exclusive to what we would refer to now as the dominant culture. So not every indigenous culture is, is uh, free of all of these major central problems of the dominant culture, but many did realize far more skillful developmental pathways. We can keep Sorensen's discernment here. He encountered examples of what he called liminal consciousness, or he also called it pre-conquest consciousness. And as a contrast to that, liminal, which sort of means it's a threshold, it's at the threshold, it's that place, the threshold we could imagine to mean in this moment, the place between knower and known. It's not the knower, it's not the known. It's not subject or object, it's not self or other, it's not individual or collective, but it's this threshold of the mystery. So he's referring to a liminal or threshold consciousness, and he is using that as a synonym for pre-conquest, that a conquest culture comes in and disrupts that liminal consciousness. And then what do we call that, that other consciousness, the one that is the disruptor? 
well, we're going to refer to it as conquest consciousness. I don't think he actually uses that phrase to refer to the other kind. He uses the term pre-conquest consciousness or liminal consciousness, but then he, he, as the contrast for him is supraliminal, which uh, doesn't fit as nicely as just calling it what it is, because there's a history of conquest. So there are interwoven dimensions here, but it goes all together. And so we're sort of riffing off of Sorensen here. If you happen to find that exact term in his work, you can let me know, but I don't, I'm not sure that he uses it. The main point, however, is that this has nothing to do with race or gender, and it has emerged in societies we couldn't describe as white. In fact, to the extent that many discussions of race distract us from this deeper issue, they may serve to perpetuate our problems and intensify certain divisions rather than dissolving them and healing them. The problem is a style of consciousness, and racism is a symptom. We can see how the way we talk about identity politics, race, institutionalized racism, and so on, has created increasing tension in the dominant culture, in particular in the U.S., and maybe it has started to create more trouble than it has healed. We, we might have gotten to the limit there, and we might need to think a little bit more about the best way to move forward to actually heal this, because we want to heal it. But what's the best way to do that? And we could begin to see that we're all victims of conquest consciousness, no matter our skin color or gender or anything else. We've been affected by it and infected by it to some degree. We might be relatively freer in one way or another, and it might even be because of suffering that has given us perspective. So that, that conquest consciousness and conquest culture can inflict suffering on its own members such that they become sensitized to what that style of consciousness is doing. It doesn't mean that we're totally free, of conquest consciousness. And it doesn't mean that the problem is race or gender or sexual orientation at all or any, anything that we experienced as, as the sharp edge of conquest consciousness, you know, where, where our wound is at. is still just a symptom. The problem, the underlying disease, is this, this deeper style of mind or style of consciousness. As part of the karma of those of us affected by or infected with the mindset called white, seems we have to turn toward the ghosts Snyder honors in his poem, and that we have to take up the work of rejuvenation together, take up the work of honoring what we have made extinct, healing the suffering we have created and that our ancestors created in their ignorance, because we've inherited that. And again, I'm in line with my ancestor Socrates here. Human beings are not our enemy. Ignorance is the problem. And so we must do the work of spreading the grass seeds of wisdom, love, and beauty in reverence to, in resonance with, the veriditas of the world. That's Hildegard's term, Hildegard of Bingen. The soul of the world and our own soul are not two things. And so we have to do this work to take care of them.
John Mohawk, a philosopher from the Seneca Nation, wrote the following. He, he wrote, quote, I think that when we talk about re-indigenization, we need a much larger, bigger umbrella to understand it. It's not necessarily about the indigenous people of a specific place. It's about re-indigenizing the peoples of the planet to the planet, end quote. That seems important to reflect on. That's coming from an indigenous thinker. And it feels inclusive. This is all of us. He's not the only indigenous person to say that we have all gotten quite destabilized by conquest consciousness. Enough so that we can really see ourselves as in this together, having to recover from the same basic problem. We have to look at our karma, including our lineage. And we also have to find the common ground so we can be in this together in a way that's real, not, not to pretend, but to acknowledge the truth. And when we go on our big medicine trips, are we re-indigenizing ourselves to the planet? Does the kind of globetrotting we do seem like an expression of indigenous wisdom? Now, maybe in some cases it, it is. Maybe in other cases it isn't. And so can we open up dialogue again about this and all the other issues that we've been trying to bring up? Because we have to figure it out together. There's no YouTube video we can watch that will make us indigenous again. It's going to take relationality, relationship with ourselves, each other, the whole community of life, including all the medicines of this world, and our relationship with the great mystery, Sophia, the wind horse of the soul. Daniel Wildcat of the Muscogee Nation of Oklahoma defines indigenizing as, quote, a set of practices that results in processes in which people seriously re-examine and adopt those particular and unique cultures that emerged from the places they choose to live today. So it's a set of practices. That's important. Love wisdom is about how we practice our lives results in a process, that is the dance of life itself. That process has to be in attunement with life. The practice gives rise to processes of inquiry, where we examine, re-examine. And the re-examine means that maybe things are different. Maybe the landscape is different. Maybe we have to all figure out how to do this. That's the idea. And we see that it's activity all the way down, interwoven activity rooted in a place with a history, with an ancestry of good and bad ways of practicing good and bad developmental pathways, unskillful pathways, that's all. We don't even have to make it, there are ethical implications, we're definitely trying to acknowledge that, but we're not in, you know, second grade here. We're talking about skillful and realistic, and vitalizing, and creative, cooperative pathways of development, and pathways that aren't as good at those things. They don't give us a style of consciousness that is skillful and realistic enough. 
and indigenous has to mean a skillful, realistic style of consciousness, a, a, a consciousness in attunement with ecological and spiritual realities. And all of us are originally indigenous. We have to repeat that again and again. I, I think we have to remember, because it's a long time ago for some of us. And so we've gotten pretty cut off from it. Even if we follow the Old Testament, we see that the, the divine made this place for us. We fit it perfectly. And we couldn't fit into this world if it were fundamentally out of attunement with us. And so that means if the divine made us in the image of the divine, then it also made the world in the image of the divine because we fit here perfectly. Totally interwoven with whatever this is. That's indigenous. We were rolled up out of dirt like anyone else. Breath of life blown in. Same thing in the story of Sophia Kura. Sophia as the energy of care of the cosmos. She makes us out of mud and puts the breath of life into us. And we can see this sensibility somewhere, even if we're following atheistic scientism or something like that. You know, we can still find a sense of sacredness. Gregory Bateson tried to develop that epistemology of the sacred, and he was an atheist. So there's a real meaning to it. There's a common ground of sacredness that we can acknowledge as part of re-indigenizing. And in that passage from Daniel Wildcat, I want to acknowledge again the inquiry. To inquire, we have to ask tough questions of ourselves and each other and of the culture and open up to answers that might mean we have to renounce something we currently find ourselves clinging to. That's a scary part of genuine inquiry and philosophical dialogue. Philosophical dialogue doesn't mean we sit around and talk about abstractions. No, it means we're on the path of love wisdom. It's dialogue rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty so that we are on the line. There's something at risk. We don't know where that dialogue is going and it may go somewhere that either the ego or the culture doesn't like. But if it's rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, we have to be ready to stand by that and renounce whatever is not in attunement with where that dialogue takes us, where wisdom, love, and beauty take us. And all of that's related to our subject matter too. Another aspect of the ethics of consciousness relates to how we relate with our conscious states and how on the basis of them we relate in the rest of our lives. And we've touched on this a little bit before. Certain medicines kind of force us into a particular state. And we have to be sensitive to context. There's the context of the medicine. So first of all, someone might be holding initiatory space and that affects us. And then the medicine might bring us almost by the scruff, you know. <laughs> the medicine might just kind of grab us by the scruff and place us in a certain state, and we get held in a state of wonder. And that's fine, because love wisdom begins in wonder. So the medicine is doing what it should. Of course, we haven't necessarily created a context ourselves to better relate to that. So that's already a, a question. How are we going to relate to that? 
And being held in such a state by the medicine doesn't necessarily give us enough understanding of that state itself and how we got into it. And we can basically feel that the medicine did it. And we have no idea how to manifest that kind of state without the medicine. Now, generally speaking, various states of consciousness in some sense happen by accident, even with training instructions, because the training instructions can't force us to be in a vitalizing state. That's not the way the miracle of instruction works. It doesn't grab us by the scruff and put us into a state. Because it's trying to help us realize that we are already that. We, We don't need something from the outside to put us there. That's what the miracle of instruction tries to focus on. And we can think of instruction as a way of orienting us. A kind of map that essentially tells us not to go anywhere. It's a map for non-doing our way into more skillful states, more ethically vitalizing states of consciousness, states of being. And the map helps us relax and let go. And it gives us teachings to handle what's coming so we can recognize that the landscape is us already. And when the states appear, and they might be intense states, we won't get freaked out. We have teachings for handling them, working with them. And if we didn't have those teachings, we could experience a lot of suffering. We could experience terror. We could have have real problems if we didn't have guidance from a skillful tradition, skillful teacher, skillful teachings, and the right preparation so that we're not just leaping into really exotic states. So that's one of the dangers. We might try to do something that we're not ready for. And we can also try to use that map to go someplace. And that's we could put go in quotes there. And what that means is that we're going to create new fabrications, new versions of our delusions, and we'll use the spiritual practice to do that. That's part of spiritual materialism. So at any rate, we get these instructions, and there's a sense in which we still kind of have to stumble into these states in in a sort of spiritual accident. Even with instruction. The instruction just allows us to stumble into them with a little bit less wasting of our time. That's the nice thing. Instead of, we could waste a lot of time and not understand anything about the territory and the experiences that might come and so on and so on and so on. We'd have all these potential risks that we'd be running, not only for ourselves but others, because again, our our practice matters to all the beings. So even with good instruction, there's a, still a spiritual accident that's kind of happening. We s- stumble into it because it involves non-doing. And so we we don't really understand non-doing. We can we know how to do our lives. We not we know how to do something. We know how to do nothing. But how do we non-do? And we'll just stumble into that non-doing and find ourselves. Afterwards, we realize, oh, that was that state. That's what that's what that was. And then we touch them again, and again. It's usually stumbling in. And we get more and more used to it. And then our style of consciousness ever so slightly begins to shift. And our thinking begins to shift more deeply. And eventually we start to think with those more skillful states of being. Or we could say we let those states produce thinking by themselves. 
we stop being the thinker and we become the thinking of a larger ecology of mind and a more skillful style of consciousness. They begin to think through us. We become, instead of the thinker, we become the thinking of wisdom, love, and beauty. And so we're touching here again the shift into the non-duality of the knower and the known. And that too makes the ethics of consciousness profound and important. I mean, it's touching everything about knowing and being, living and loving. The ethics of consciousness teaches us that our state of consciousness can either limit or it can liberate what we can know and also what the world can be. And when we start to sense that really palpably, we start to sense that it carries tremendous significance, our state of consciousness. And thus we really do need to think. We, we, we start to sense that. We really do need to think and commit, make commitments around the ethics and even the morality of certain states of consciousness. We begin to see that a certain style of consciousness reliably creates inequality and injustice. And it has no investment in what they are or what they look like. It's not invested in racial injustice in particular. That may be how it looks or how it manifests in one context or another, but that's an accident. If we get hooked on the accidental aspects, we might miss the underlying problem or disease. And that underlying disease is a conquest style of consciousness, a conquest style of relating and in a conquest style of consciousness, somebody's got to be under the thumb, under the boot of that conquest. Oppression, domination, aggression, injustice, and inequality of almost every kind come from this style of consciousness first and foremost, and it doesn't care about the details. And so all the other things we talk about can serve to distract us from the root problem. It's not that they don't matter or that they aren't important, because for the people being oppressed and suffering, it matters a lot. There is real violence against women in this world, violence against people of color, violence against all marginalized groups. And if we want to help we better look at the root of the problem, the underlying disease. It's like a virus we've all been infected with because we're touched by or even deeply in the midst of the dominant culture. And that infection produces marginalized groups. That's just part of how it functions as a style of consciousness. And it does much more than that, of course. It produces and perpetuates ignorance. And we all fall victim to that, even the most marginalized among us. 
For instance, if we think Barack Obama didn't participate in conquest consciousness, we have gotten very confused. From the time of his first campaign, when that campaign was coming together, he had already surrounded himself with the soldiers of conquest consciousness, and very tellingly, his campaign won an advertising award. Hillary Clinton was the same. Now, those two figures might have had, maybe if, if Clinton had been elected, then maybe Obama and Clinton, we could have looked and, and thought that they had somehow a little bit less of a negative effect than Trump had. It does make a difference when we are able to choose what appears to be maybe the lesser of two evils, and I know there would be a lot of reactivity and debate about that in certain camps, but what we refer to as two main political parties in the U.S. are more or less two faces of the same conquest consciousness. And, and one face might seem to be a little kinder, a little softer, maybe a little bit less crazy, depending on what side you're on. You, 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 you know which one you think is the crazier one. But they're really the same, same style of consciousness. Now, some of us might be more sensitive because we've suffered the effects more. And that might make us a little bit more ethical. It's, it's true that there are differences, obviously, and we can have differences in spiritual practice, and some of us might be a lot closer to really becoming adults, or maybe even we might be on a path of eldership. That's all great. We might have a greater sense of compassion. There might be people out there, and again, sometimes it is people from marginalized groups who have been just sensitized to the insanity of conquest consciousness. And they might have a lot of insight that goes with that sensitivity because they had to deal with some of the more egregious aspects of conquest consciousness. But that doesn't change the fact that the root cause is where the healing will happen best. Otherwise, we end up treating symptoms and leaving the disease. So, for instance, maybe we do need anti-racism education, but maybe we don't need it. And maybe it's an error to pursue such an approach. Our conversations around race certainly bring up a lot of defensiveness and reactivity in the dominant culture, especially maybe in the United States. And those conversations and any interventions we attempt seem to only address a symptom or a set of symptoms. A holistic philosophy of life, on the other hand, would give us a way to heal the underlying disease. Now, the structures of power will certainly react against our efforts there, too. Let's not delude ourselves about that. The entire education system currently functions to keep us away from a holistic philosophy of life. But moving in the direction of that kind of philosophy, and moving in the direction of philosophy in general, real philosophy, real holism, that moves us toward a common ground. And it maybe doesn't make any particular group get defensive for superficial reasons, by which I, I mean that they aren't real experientially, but they aren't the underlying cause. They might be symptoms, okay? But it's to say that the lesion on, in your skin is a superficial symptom. The disease is the real thing we want to look for and figure out how to heal, and we don't have to take an anti-approach. We don't have to be anti-anything, not even anti-racism, anti-injustice. 
I suppose if we need an enemy, because William James wrote about this, what's the moral equivalent of war? Because he said, you know, war is a metaphor, is a very effective organizing metaphor. Everyone wants to be a soldier for something. So we can be soldiers of love if we want. And if we really need an enemy as soldiers of wisdom, soldiers of love, soldiers of beauty, then we can make ignorance and aggression the enemy. We could make conquest consciousness the enemy as long as we don't associate it with any particular beings. It's a style of consciousness. It's just another way of talking about a manifestation of ignorance. So if ignorance is the enemy, that's okay. But if human beings or any sentient beings become the enemy, we might have a real problem on our hands. And in any case, we can frame things in very positive terms, make everything in relation to our highest values, our own highest values. Nobody has to give us our values. In a, ho in a holistic philosophy of life that functions as a common ground, each of us can identify our own calling, our own unique path, and our own highest values, the way that we think our life means something. And we can share some kind of common ground of wisdom, love, and beauty as well as a common ground of being affected by and even infected by conquest consciousness and by ignorance in general. And sure, some of us have more intense symptoms, but we suffer the same basic ailment. We're in it together. The wisdom traditions refer to this basic ailment as ignorance. That's how we most often find it. And conquest consciousness, again, is just a variety of ignorance, a style of ignorance, a manifestation of it. Our traditions teach us that People don't do evil things on the basis of wisdom. Rather, we do evil things on the basis of ignorance. There's no venerable tradition that recommends ignorance. And no wisdom tradition recommends cultivating a style of consciousness conducive to ignorance, fear, aggression, self-centeredness, craving, jealousy. But the dominant culture doesn't even fully recognize this central issue of the ethics of consciousness and doesn't yet understand in any deep way the harms of unethical styles of consciousness. Now this goes to the very heart of the challenges we face today. The dominant culture cultivates a style of consciousness that reliably produces aggression, depression, confusion, ecological degradation, injustice, inequality, and a host of symptoms we should see as a common set rather than fragmenting them as conquest consciousness itself teaches us to do. It's almost like its own immune system teaches us the fragmentation that can't see the bigger picture of its own destruction and its destructiveness. We see the PTSD over there, anxiety over here, cancer over there, and so on. And we see each of these as inside a person. That person has cancer. That person has anxiety. You, the problem is in you, and we've got the fix. And instead of that, we could see these as a single set of symptoms arising as part of the unity of mind and nature, the unity of nature and culture, the non-duality of self and world. 
but we can begin to bring the ethics of consciousness and ethics in general into nature and culture. We can join together in dialogue and help each other find our way home. As a way to bring this contemplation to a close, you know, we, we can't touch all the issues here, but we're trying to get some feel for a lot of the things that could be left out in some of the discussions that we have today, most common discussions for working with the medicines of our world. Again, lots of exceptions. We're just looking at overall overarching philosophical diagnoses and reflections and suggestions. But as a way to bring to a close this contemplation on the ethics of consciousness, it seems like a nice idea to turn toward my own lineage again, our own lineage, if you're in the dominant culture, to touch one more facet of the ethics of consciousness. So as usual, we turn to Socrates because of his relevance to our life today. The essence of the wisdom traditions applies every bit as much today as thousands of years ago, in part because our ignorance has remained basically in this same style of consciousness as in Socrates' time. It was already there, conquest consciousness. Socrates stands out as an important figure for a variety of reasons, not least of which that he serves as a wonderful example of an ethically skillful consciousness. We can think of any sage as someone who has cultivated the most ethically vitalizing styles of consciousness. And Socrates is an ancestor to the whole group of traditions we could refer to as the dominant culture. At this point, that culture and its citizens, its varied citizens, have mostly lost touch with the sacred imperatives of love wisdom Socrates sought to impart to his culture and thus to ours, since we inherit from him. He's our ancestor in the dominant culture. And we can remember again those sacred imperatives. We can remember him as an example of a healthier developmental path and as someone who calls to us to take care of our souls. That was in some ways his central message, care. Care of the soul, care of the world, care of the sacred. To be attendants of the sacred. In some sense, every philosopher in the dominant culture wrestles with Socrates, and all of us are philosophers. That's why we're talking about all of this. Philosophy is how we do things. How we live how we work with the medicines of our world, how we organize our lives together and take care of this world, cultivate the whole of life onward. So anyone in the dominant culture trying to think through how to do anything at all can benefit from looking to the figure of Socrates because he introduced some of the core notions of a holistic philosophy of life in a, in a good way, and he tried to live it, tried to let his life be his argument. And in Plato's work, and remember the history of Western philosophy is footnotes to Plato, in Plato's work, the one who most often speaks on behalf of Sophia, on behalf of wisdom, love, and beauty, that's Socrates. He's voicing wisdom, love, and beauty for us. And so he's a powerful image. 
In one of the dialogues, Alcibiades tells us that prior to Socrates, anyone we might have met, we could have identified them in terms of some other figure, maybe like an archetypal figure, we might say. So we might meet someone and say, oh, he's a real Achilles, or she's a real Penelope, or whatever the case might be. We could find someone in myth or mythical history whom anyone we met seemed to represent, you know. But Alcibiades said we couldn't do that with Socrates because he was just too unique. It was as if Socrates were the first true individual in the dominant culture. And one of the things that was exceptional about Socrates was that his style of consciousness, his basic way of being, never changed. He was responsive to each given circumstance, each being he related with, but his style of consciousness remained consistent. Alcibiades had a few specific things in mind. For one, the battlefield. That impressed him. Socrates was incredible. When everybody else lost their minds in fear and panic, when the enemy was routing them, Socrates was clear, calm, fully present, and focused on taking care of everyone else. He was making sure everybody was okay. Everybody else is just running for their lives, and he's making sure everybody's okay. He wouldn't retreat into conquest consciousness, which has fear and aggression as two of its driving engines. Alcibiades also had in mind that he thought if he got Socrates alone, that Socrates would behave differently. But Socrates wouldn't. We can think here of the guru, teacher, healer, therapist. Maybe a certain person works with psychedelics. Maybe they teach yoga or meditation or whatever it might be, and they talk a good, holy game in the ceremony space, in the meditation hall, in the yoga space. But when they find themselves alone with a student, they try to seduce that student or allow that student to seduce them. Socrates never did that, even though Alcibiades actively tried to get something to happen with Socrates. And he knew Socrates was in love with him. Socrates made no secret of that. Everybody knew it. But when Alcibiades got Socrates alone and tried to put the moves on, Socrates wouldn't have it. It's a powerful lesson. Socrates wouldn't allow his style of consciousness to shift like that. He might have been perfectly fine if Alcibiades had been a very serious and deep practitioner. If Alcibiades really wanted to change his life, if he could make the choice to relate with Socrates on the basis of wisdom, ethics, and a clear mind, then maybe, just maybe, Socrates might have accepted his advances. It just depends, because... Uh, Obviously, in some traditions, a teacher can have a uh, romantic relationship with the student. In other traditions, that's not allowed. And I don't know what Socrates' ultimate feelings about that were. But he certainly did know that it was all a game with Alcibiades as he was. And he wasn't going to indulge it. Alcibiades functioned out of pride, craving, hope, fear, and other forms of ignorance and suffering. And Socrates wouldn't allow his mind to get pulled into that. 
The more we think about these sorts of things, the more we can sense the revolution a holistic philosophy of life invites, and that includes an ethics of consciousness. And the medicines of our world, including psychedelic medicines, can empower this kind of revolution, a revolution we very much need. The revolution has to do with the fact that we habitually accept our consciousness as revealing things as they are. It's just a habit. When we look, we think we're just seeing reality. We find out through the medicines of our world, including psychedelics, that what we refer to as consciousness is actually not very conscious at all. In a deep sense, what we refer to as consciousness is actually ignorance. The medicines of our world can help reveal to us that the thing we have habitually thought of as consciousness is ignorance. And that somehow or other, we have access to different states of being. States of being that prove themselves far more conducive to revealing the truth about the nature of our ignorance and the nature of reality. That's maybe their greatest potential, because the only true illness is ignorance. And all the rest of it is incidental and accidental. And we can only realize the fullness of that benefit with a more holistic philosophy of life, including more awareness of the ethics of consciousness, which tells us that we don't really understand everything from one or even many overwhelming glimpses into these other states. That's part of what the ethics of consciousness reminds us. That having a big experience does not a shift in our entire style of consciousness make. It's not sufficient. And we begin to realize that we have an ethical duty to cultivate, to actively cultivate more skillful states of being, more skillful, more realistic, more creative, more peaceful, more joyful, mutually illuminating, mutually vitalizing, mutually nourishing, mutually liberating states of being in ourselves, of course, and in the world. And we also have an ethical duty to teach people, to make this part of education so that people can learn from a young age how to work with these more skillful states of being for themselves. We want to learn to do that with our own mind, learn how to use our own mind and learn our own fuller capacities, not just have these states triggered in us, by something that feels like it's coming from the outside. It's not to say that that's wrong or that we should never work with the medicine that gives us that experience, maybe initially. Maybe we continue to work with the medicine and, and enter into a more non-dualistic relationship, but also we could learn how we have access to those states just without an apparent external agent. There's an ethical dimension here that says we have to learn how to work with our own experience and learn how to spark back to life the development of our own consciousness, the development that has been interrupted by conquest consciousness, 
by the developmental patterning of the dominant culture that got forced on all of us. The medicines of our world can help us spark back to life that development, and they can do this best if we work with them in the context of a holistic philosophy of life. That is, that the first medicine is still instruction. That's still the primary medicine. Holistic instruction. Not just a little bit, not just here, we're going to say a little bit, but a holistic philosophy of life becomes the ecology, central to the ecology. The medicines of our world work best in wholeness. And the teachings of our wisdom traditions help us to move from and toward wholeness. And that's why we have an ethical obligation to incorporate this into education, into teaching and learning at all levels. And that includes teaching and learning about medicines. Whether we're facilitating somebody else working with the medicine or we're the one coming to work with that medicine, we have to have that education. This is a teaching and learning that of necessity must happen in relation to all the medicines of our world, if those medicines can optimally heal us and the world at the same time. Well, that seems like a good place for a break. <laughs> it was a very important subject, and I do encourage you to think more into it. And next time we'll look at one of the most essential things that I, as a philosopher, recommend for anyone working with the medicines of our world, including psychedelics. So I hope you'll join in for that contemplation. And in the meantime, if you have questions, reflections, stories to share about the medicines of our world and your experiences with them, maybe something related to the ethics of consciousness, it doesn't have to be, Get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of your thoughts, questions, reflections, suggestions into a future contemplation. Until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.